This is the Monday, December 11, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels back to the American Civil War as we watch the fate of the key city of Atlanta unfold before our very eyes. The book is All the Fighting They Want, The Atlanta Campaign from Peachtree Creek to the City's Surrender, July 18 to September 2nd, 1864. Our guide on this journey is Stephen Davis, a longtime Atlantan and Civil War enthusiast since the fourth grade. His previous book that's a companion to this one is A Long and Bloody Task, The Atlanta Campaign from Dalton through Kennesaw to the Chattahoochee, May 5th to July 18, 1864. Both books are part of the Emerging Civil War series published by Savas Beatty, LLC. You can learn more about titles like these at SavasBeatty.com or by following them on Twitter at LLC. Stephen Davis served as book review editor for Blue and Gray magazine for more than 20 years, and you've seen his many articles in scholarly and popular journals. His previous books include 2001's Atlanta Will Fall, Sherman, Joe Johnston, and the Yankee Heavy Battalions, as well as 2012's What the Yankees Did to Us, Sherman's Bombardment and the Wrecking of Atlanta. Okay, now that we've mustered into the Army, Let's join Stephen Davis and watch as the Union Army gives Atlanta's defenders all the fighting they want. I'm joined on the line by Stephen Davis, author of All the Fighting They Want, the Atlanta campaign from Peachtree Creek to the city's surrender, July 18 to September 2nd, 1864. Thank you so much for making the time to chat about the war with the History Author Show. Glad to, Dean. Thanks for asking me. I want to start with the title of the book and the one before it, A Long and Bloody Task, The Atlanta Campaign from Dalton through Kennesaw to the Chattahoochee, huh? The Chattahoochee River, yeah. Okay. Through Kennesaw Mountains. (laughs) That's a hard one for a Yankee to say. Well, (laughs) you know, a lot of those place names are Indian names down here from the Creeks and Cherokees, especially places like Chattahoochee. So welcome to the American South. Yeah, that's a hard one. The first book is A Long and Bloody Task. I take that from a, a Tennessee sergeant who, in April of 64, before the campaign started, wrote home saying, you know, I don't know what the campaign brings 
forth for us, but we can project a long and bloody task. That's a uh, sergeant from Tennessee, the, uh, the Confederate. So everyone expected in April and May, before the campaign started, when Sherman was moving through Georgia, that it was going to be literally a fight to the end. Confederates knew that they were fighting for Atlanta. It was the spring of 64, while a lot of Southerners remained buoyant and optimistic regarding their their chances to hold off against Yankee victory. Remember, it's a presidential election year in the fall. And holding Atlanta was very important to the rebels, just as they had confidence that General Lee was going to be able to hold Richmond against Meade and Grant. So, so uh, people like the late Albert Castell and my good friend Richard McMurray have painted the scenario that in the spring of 64, Confederates felt that they had a chance to win, or at least keep the Yankees from winning. And by the time you then get to the summer and then you begin all the fighting they want, Atlanta is the only city in the Deep South that's untouched by the war. And I've seen it called the Chicago of the South, that it has those railroad spurs. It's a fun thing if you love maps to look back at it and see even today we think of highways more than we did railroads back then. So I was surprised to read in all the fighting they want, quote, Atlanta's importance was largely in terms of psychology and morale. It wasn't just that the railroads were there. This was amazing to me, a a revelation, which was really great to find, especially in a topic like the Civil War, where you think you've picked up everything. So explain why that's the case. Well, by July of 64, by, let's say, mid-July, certainly, which is the start of my paperback, and by the way, all the fighting they want comes from General Sherman, who said, who wrote to an officer, the rebels say that they want to fight a lot. Well, we'll give them all the fighting they want, and then some. By the mid-July, Sherman is five miles outside of Atlanta. By that time, General Johnston has removed the major munitions Atlanta had been a medical and supply depot. Most of the hospitals had been moved to places like Macon South. The supplies had been moved out. The railroads were largely cut. By mid-July, only one railroad connected Atlanta to the rest of the Deep South. So why did President Davis want to hold it? Psychology. Holding Atlanta was just an important statement to the North, and especially to the rest of the Confederacy, that there's a lot of fight, and we won't be taking a licking anytime soon. Georgia, talk a little bit about its role in the Confederacy as a state. One of the challenges that the Confederacy faced is when you've already seceded, you have states that are four states' rights. They're going to try to pull their own way. We think we have a divided nation now. Here you have each state saying they know how to do things best. Talk a little bit about the attitude in Georgia when the fighting gets there and maybe their attitude about having been untouched. They're still ready to get in the fight. They don't think they're going to be licked. Well, I like the latter part. You know, one of the nice things, Dean, about being long with tooth is, especially having grown up as a teenager in the centennial, I now see about half a century of evolution in the literature growing up as a teenager and and making my bones in the Civil War. Down here in the South, a lot of people spoke about Governor Joseph E. Brown, how he, Zeb Vance of North Carolina, and a few others 
were wayward partisans. They were in support of the Confederacy, but they believed in state rights, and sometimes they bickered with the government, asserting the right of the state over the common defense. But a couple of things. Nowadays, the idea of Joe Brown as a go-it-alone guy is really not part of the literature. If anything, we know that by the time that the war came to Georgia, Joe Brown was very much a team player. He did not, he did not deny the Confederate war effort, supplies, munitions. If you'll remember, the Western and Atlantic Railroad was the railroad from Atlanta to Chattanooga. It was owned by the state. Joe Brown put it perfectly at the command and wherewithal of the Confederate Army, especially when Johnston began the offensive in North Georgia around Dalton. Moreover, when yet the Yankees got close by, Joe Brown was doing everything he could to call out more militia. In the couple of weeks of the first, second, third week of July, Joe Brown increased the militia that was helping to defend Atlanta from 3,000 to about 5,000. And General Hood, the Confederate commander, recognized that these teenagers and old men with shotguns would not do very well in an open field fight. But if they were in the defenses of Atlanta, he counted them as good troops. And he relied upon the Georgia militia, and George and Governor Brown called the militia out and did everything he could to support the cause. You mentioned General Joseph E. Johnston and his replacement, John Bell Hood. How does their strategy to keep the city of Atlanta out of Union hands compare then with Sherman's on offense? Sherman was a smart general, and tactically, I think that he has points above Grant. Remember that in May of 64, Grant is busy using his overwhelming numbers to bludgeonly in places like uh, Spotsylvania, certainly Cold Harbor, etc. Sherman, on the other hand, enjoys a sizable numerical majority. He knew that he was two to one odds over Johnston in, let's say, the start of the campaign in early May of 64. But as opposed to Grant, he was not going to use his superior numbers in knocking Joe Johnston's prepared defensive fortifications with bloody frontal attacks. Rather, he uses his army to test Johnston's line while sending flanking columns, usually around by his right, around the Confederate left, to threaten Johnston's railroad. And Johnston, his strategy was a purely defensive one. He took eight or nine successive positions from Dalton all the way south of the Chattahoochee, taking a strong position, hoping Sherman would attack him, waiting for Sherman to come up, sortie, shell, faint, skirmish. And meanwhile, Sherman is flanking him by the left. Johnson would have to retreat so that from May 5th to July 9th or 10th, Johnson has in the course of two months given up 70 miles of North Georgia. No wonder President Davis was apoplectic when on the morning of the 10th, he receives telegram from General Johnston saying, well, we've crossed the Chattahoochee, the last river barrier between Sherman and Atlanta. 
Uh, and, and if you remember, Davis kind of worried for a week or so, trying to get more information. He's asking General Lee, what should I do? He's calling his cabinet in. Finally, on the night of the 16th, Davis asks Johnson, what is your plan to save the city? Johnson famously says, and this is a, almost a direct quote, as the enemy have double our numbers, we must await opportunity. In the meantime, I intend to hold the city with the militia that the movements of the army may be freer and wider. What? <laughs> he's, he's having the old men and teenagers hold the defenses of Atlanta while he's taking the three infantry corps out in maneuvers for an open field fight against Sherman? That was no way to impress the president. Within 24 hours, he was fired. And they bring in John Bell Hood. Yes. He seems to have a plan, as I get it from reading all the fighting they want. He's well, gonna... yeah, the president asked him, essentially, don't give up Atlanta without a fight. And he knew, of course, Hood personally. Let's remember, Dean, that in the winter of 63-64, Hood spent a couple of months in Richmond convalescing from his Chickamauga amputation. He is the lion of Richmond society. That's when he trucks up with Buck Preston. Mary Chestnut is writing almost daily about soirees where Hood is lionized. If you remember during this time, the president takes Hood on carriage rides privately with him. Hood worships with the president and Mrs. Davis in St. John's in Richmond and almost draws cheers or tears when after the services, the president helps Hood, who's hobbling with his crutch and his fake leg, down the steps of the front of the church on Sunday mornings in Richmond. So the president knew his man and knew that Hood, if he promised to not give up Atlanta without a fight, he was going to count on him to do it. There's a claim that you debunk in all the fighting they want. And this is the kind of thing that comes up again and again in history and in stories. Captain Francis digresses opening artillery barrage for the Union. They say killed a little girl. And that's something that maybe folks have heard from time to time. Does that belief endure here in 2017? And Not if what I was can the... help it. Not... <laughs> Not if I can help it. Yeah. Um, the story is that, well, first of all, I've done a lot of reading of Confederate newspapers, Dean, and you can bet your bottom dollar that if a little girl had been killed downtown on the streets of Atlanta by one of Captain DeGress's opening shells on the afternoon of the July 20th, the press would have picked up on it. Rather, the first newspaper claim of a little girl's death appeared in the Constitution in 1888. <laughs> a bunch of old Atlantans are getting together, writing columns, say, oh, yeah, I remember that first shell. It killed a little girl down on East Dallas. And after that, the secondary literature took hold, and it's completely baseless in the literature especially the Confederate newspapers. So I've done my best as an Atlantan to put the kibosh on it, and I'm relatively satisfied that we have, except but in some more of the old guard. Well, people want to hold on to things sometimes, a lot of those, and I, I like to debunk those. Sentimental stories. 
Yeah. Sentimental stories. There's uh, another one, a more recent example, by the way, that I'll mention to folks just because I like to debunk this one. This is very similar. What it reminded me of this little girl that never was being killed, Muammar Gaddafi. This was something he made up in 1986 when the United States bombed there punitively for punishment for supporting terrorism and for bombings. And that was one of the things they claimed that he had this daughter. And the girl's age varies in news reports from, I think, three to about 16. There was never any such daughter that was killed, but you'll hear still hear people today mention casually, maybe not so much anymore now that Muammar Gaddafi has gone off to a worse place, I guess, than his palaces. But that reminded me of that and how much in the human condition that was where people will bring that up. This is not something that the Confederates were raising at the time. As you mentioned, it comes out much, much later. But that same impulse to distill down maybe the brutality of an enemy into the death of a little girl, what could be more? Or sympathetic, right? Yeah, a sentimental little legend. Bless her little heart, but she never existed. I want to mention also another face that jumped out at me there, being somebody that finds presidents and historical figures interesting, is I open up the book and maybe I'm alone or one of very few people who would look and say, hey, Benjamin Harrison. But I said that when I saw then Colonel Benjamin Harrison staring up at me from all the fighting they want. He goes on to become the 22nd president. He's kind of a cold slice of meat between Grover Cleveland's non-consecutive terms. They gave him that nickname, the human iceberg. They said his handshake was like a, a raw chicken cutlet. He's he's not. There's a little bit of audio of him where he, he sounds much more animated than these descriptions that have come down to us through history. But since this brings him to life here in the Atlanta campaign, I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about the role that he plays in this battle. Good, 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 Dane. Yeah, uh, Colonel Harrison's brigade of Indianans, Illinois, were essentially in the middle of the Union line. And we down here in Atlanta know that the Battle of Peachtree Creek was well south of Peachtree Creek and just north of Collier Road, which is the main east-west road joining Buckhead to the Chattahoochee, essentially. So the Yankee line is north of Collier Road. The Confederates are attacking from the south, coming out of the Confederate earthworks. And even though Harrison and the other regiments and brigades of Thomas's army are safely crossed the Peachtree Creek, they're a mile or a half mile south of Peachtree Creek, they don't expect an attack. And in fact, some of the Union officers are wondering, hey, why aren't we digging in? And they're being told from above, no, the rebels aren't going to attack. And in fact, this came from above. Sherman expected, he didn't know Hood. He expected Hood at a couple of different times to be giving up the city. He just didn't think that Hood was going to be tenacious enough. But here it is, not only is Hood tenacious, but he's attacking within two days of having assumed command of the army. And the rebels sweep across, call your road, catch the Yankees in some low ground north of what we call Collier Road Ridge, and we're able to overrun Colonel Harrison's skirmishers until we run into the main body. And actually, Harrison and the units to his right and left had something of a numerical advantage. They rally and push the rebels back up the ridge and repulse the Confederate attack. But Harrison holds that position there along Collier Road, 
between what we call Piedmont Hospital and Northside Drive. And you have to be a long time Atlanta to know, oh, that's where Colonel Harrison's brigade was. You bring this history up through that concrete because so much has changed. And here was a guy like Benjamin Harrison who's little remembered today, if he's remembered at all. This is a time also of the year where the guys are fighting there. It's summer. And I think we've at least heard of the Atlanta summer. I have not experienced it. You've lived there through your whole life. Talk about what that feels like. What was that like for the men fighting? Yeah, let's talk about Peachtree Creek, which was the Confederate attack on July 20th. It's a hot sunny summer day and more than one confederate officer observed that in the long march out from the confederate works a mile or so just to get into startup positions on the attack they're marching in the heat then they double quick into the charge george maney's division wilts under the heat and the Yankee long-distance fire, and never even get close to the Yankees. Heat on that summer afternoon is at least one of the causative factors. It seems like it would be just unbearable to fight in that. Here's guys, not only they're wearing a uniform, not only they weighted down, but it's not as if you had a bottle of spring water. Today, everybody has a bottle of spring water that they carry with them everywhere, and it must have been impossible just to get hydrated, was it? Exactly. You know, once the canteen goes, the canteen goes. And that part of the battlefield was not suffused with lots of tributaries. And and remember, the Confederate attack is starting out on July 20th late. It's 4 p.m. The rebels know that they have three hours of sunlight. General Hood wanted the attack to begin around 1, but they had to realign their troops and shift a division to the right. The attack didn't start until four. Everyone knows that the object is to drive the Yankees from the south side of Peachtree Creek. There's no time to dawdle. Yeah. July 20th is just one of the three battles. Actually, the heaviest battle that General Hood fought was 48 hours later, the famous flanking attack of July 22nd. And one of the points that I try to make is that Sherman was a real blunderer. Sherman had a blind spot, myopia, about railroads. He was just as determined to destroy the rebel railroads as to destroy the rebel army. Dean, here's the situation on the afternoon of July 21. General McPherson's army is marching in east of Atlanta from Decatur, and He's a couple of miles outside of Atlanta, and on the afternoon of the 21st, Sherman tells McPherson, I want you to send Kenner Garrard's division of cavalry off to destroy more of the railroad toward Covington. General McPherson says, but Comp, (laughs) McGarrard's division is guarding my left flank. You send the cavalry off to raid the railroads, my flank's in the air. It didn't matter. Sherman wanted Garrard sent off. So as a result, General Wheeler, by 2.30 p.m. on the afternoon of the 21st, reports to General Hood, the Yankee left flanks in the air. Within a couple of hours, Hood has his plan to send Hardee's Corps south of the city and then up against the Yankee left flank and into the rear of Mack's army. And only Providence and 
Mac had worried that the rebels were going to attack, and no sooner than the afternoon that Gerard leaves does McPherson begin making dispositions to face his troops in the very direction that Hood's attack falls around lunchtime the next day, July 22nd. So Hood planned a flanking attack, and it was not only the biggest battle, but it was the closest the Confederates came to a battlefield victory. It is the battlefield on which General McPherson was killed, the only Union Army commander, KIA, during the war on the battlefield. We're speaking with Stephen Davis, author of All the Fighting They Want, The Atlanta Campaign from Peachtree Creek to the City's Surrender, July 18 to September 2, 1864. It's the companion to his previous paperback, A Long and Bloody Task, The Atlanta Campaign from Dalton through Kennesaw to the Chattahoochee, May 5th to July 18, 1864. Both books are part of the Emerging Civil War series published by Savas Beatty, LLC. Learn more about their titles at SavasBeatty.com or follow them on Twitter at LLC. Civil War Books and Authors praises all the fighting they want as masterfully succinct and says the story zeroes in on the most salient points of interest associated with each event. Because you can only dedicate a few pages to the battle here. That's not an easy task. And I know you dedicated the book to... Well, Irvin Wiley, my great professor at, at Emory when I was an undergraduate. And you say he, quote, taught me that writing clearly about what you know is just as important as knowing it in the first place, unquote. So there you are in your office, I assume, or your library or wherever you do your writing. You're surrounded not only by piles of books and papers. I'm imagining all this. Maybe you're having a mint julep because you're in Atlanta. So I figured that might be what you enjoy <laughs> down there to, at a respectable time in the afternoon. As my uh, Yaya Adiros said, you know, four o'clock, you'd watch the TV. If you, you drank before four or five, you, you were drunk. But if you, she would always wait. She'd watch that clock and then have her Johnny Walker Black on the Rocks. So uh, at the end of a hard day of writing, I imagine you're there. And maybe then you take a stroll because not only do you have all those books, but you have an unmatched wealth of personal experience. You've walked this land. You know what was there under that Walmart or that concrete slab or that strip mall. So how do you go about shaving that mountain of print and personal experience down into that readable narrative that they describe there so favorably in Civil War books and authors. Well, thank you very much. You know, and and thanks for mentioning Dr. Wiley, because I still have, Dean, my junior paper that I wrote for him at Emory, and the margins are filled with his red pencil. Bell would spend that much time marking it up. And at the very end, he says, you're showing promise as a researcher. Your chief deficiency is your writing. You just don't forget that kind of stuff. Another thing that I learned from Bell is how people like Bruce Catton and others said civil war and bell had a lot of respect for journalists and non-professional historians 
largely for their ability to tell the story. Catton was a newspaper man. Bell Wiley respected that. And so the idea here in this paperback is get the story down to 15,000 words because the books and because uh, the pictures and the maps are going to take the rest of it up. Well, that's an exercise in discipline. And I appreciate the challenge of having to tell my story in that kind of length because it's like the old Bob Seger tune, what to leave in and what to leave out. <laughs> yeah, you remember that? Yeah, sure. Against the wind? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you've got 50 minutes with the student body, what to leave in, what to leave out. You've got 15,000 words to cover the campaign from July 18th to September 2nd. What do you leave in and what do you leave out? And you have to trust pictures here to do some of the carrying. Something like Benjamin Harrison. Even if I didn't know who he was, he's going to jump out of you. That's an official picture there. You know, he's got his whiskers. You say, who is this guy? It's a face looking at you from a book. Rather than you having gone into that whole list there of here, I'm going to talk about Benjamin Harrison. You can get something done there, and hopefully then somebody will be have their interest peaked, and they'll want to go learn more about him. Or these historical markers. I thought this was fantastic. I love markers like that, and you have a ton of pictures of them in All the Fighting They Want, and you tell us a little bit about them, and you also mention a a man responsible for dotting them in and around Atlanta, Wilbur G. Kurtz. Sure, exactly. And you know, part of growing up as an Atlantan and loving the Civil War, you drive around the city and that's all we have, the markers. Wilbur Kurtz in the 1950s was hired by the state to write the text for these markers. A couple of hundred of them dot the city, and they tell the story. People these days don't stop to read them, but they're the only vestige we happen to have. Yeah, you don't have a big battlefield, none of those things that are preserved, but you have these markers, and it was fortunate he went and talked to people and was able to figure out what went where. Exactly. Kurtz was doing his research in 1930s, Dean, when... The city was growing over the battlefields, but in a number of cases, Kurtz was able to find earthworks that were still extant. One of the things that I like to tell, and I think I mentioned it in my paperback, Kurtz in the late 20s was wandering around in what is now the north reaches of the Georgia Tech campus, and he came upon three big Union artillery emplacements, and he, and he was familiar with field works. He said, these aren't embrasures for regular artillery. So he went and he looked and he remembered that big three big four-and-a-half-inch cannon had been brought by Sherman from Chattanooga, and they arrived circa August 10th and were placed in Geary's division front of the 20th Corps. Well, by that time, the late 20s, 30s, Kurtz knew exactly where Geary's division was in relation to the city. So he figured out those three embrasures that he saw were the positions of the four and a half inch guns. And he quietly inked them into a famous map that he drew of Atlanta in 1938, in which he superimposed earthworks on the streets of Atlanta as they existed in 38. That's a famous map I've grown up with since a teenager. And you know what, Dean? 
people who don't live in this city and who don't know the legacy and vestiges of Wilbur Kurtz. That's one of the reasons that I enjoyed telling my story, and I hope it suffuses my narrative. It does. These people come to life and you say, here's a man who, he I'm sure he had other things he could have been doing instead of wandering around looking for spots that looked like they were earthworks, that somebody had been at work there with a shovel 70 or what have you years ago. He went out and looked and he wrote it down, which is great. He talked to people. There's a story I believe you tell. He talked to a lady, was it, that passed away or her husband had just passed away. And get get that living memory of what was going on there at the time and leave us with those markers so we know what happened there. Precisely. Again, maybe circa 30 or so, 1930, he was reading General Cox's memoir, which was published. Uh, Cox was a division commander in the 23rd Corps, and he wrote a great history of uh, circa 1902 of the Atlanta campaign. Cox talked about how in mid-August his division line was west-southwest of the city, but that some local farm people had dug a big dugout a little bit behind his line, and he described the dugout of the Joseph Willis family and how during shelling a couple of dozen people would climb inside of it. This was a big bomb proof. Well, guess what, Dean? I read this in Kurtz's manuscript notebooks at the Atlanta History Center. He tells the story that one Sunday afternoon he said to his wife, Annie, I'll be back at dinner time. Well, Wilbur, where are you going? Well, I know where these Yankee trenches were around Cascade Road. I'm going to drive down there and see if anyone knows about the what Joseph Willis house. And back in 1930, people did. Sure enough, he hit Peter. He knocked on the door, and an old woman said, Well, you're in luck, Mrs. Kurtz. I'm Elizabeth Heron. I'm the daughter of Joseph Willis. And while I was born three years after the war, I remember my mom and pop talking about the bomb-proof. And by the way, if you have a minute, Let's walk three doors down because that that's where my father had his property. And she showed him where the bomb proof was in the backyard. But by that time, it was an indentation. <laughs> Kurtz, on the strength of her description, sketched it and wrote the article about the Willis bomb proof in the Atlanta newspaper published in 1930. And jolly well that he did, Dean, because a few months later, Elizabeth Heron, age 67, was kicked in the hip by a horse, and died within a month of surgical complication. The way I like to put it in my book, if Kurtz had not gone out that Sunday and met Mrs. Heron and gotten that story of the Willis bomb proof, we would be denied what I call as close to a first-person narrative of a family in a bomb proof during the summer of Sherman's showing. God bless Wilbur Kurtz. That could have just been lost. That could have just been, oh, hey, what's this little divot here in the ground? And we wouldn't know. And that's why it's just so important to go speak to people and get their living testimony. Because once they're gone, they're just gone. Even if it's a member of your own family. I mentioned my grandmother there, my Yaya Adiro. Often I think, I wish I could go back and ask her that. My wife does genealogy, does the family tree. And I think, I wish that I could go back and ask her some things. But we don't think to stop and do it. And I thought that that was a great thing. I, I was really cheering for you there when you say, God, you saw those marks there, those three marks, or when you're telling this story of him knocking on that door, making that effort yeah. to do it, just for the love of the history of it. Yeah, exactly. And like you say, Dean, once those stories are gone, they're gone. I don't tell this story in my first paperback, but General Polk was killed June 14th, 
64 by one of Sherman's shells. Uh, what I don't tell is that he was the Episcopal bishop of Louisiana, but because New Orleans was under federal occupation, he could not be moved back to be buried in his diocese. So the Episcopal bishop of Georgia, Stephen Elliott, had him buried underneath the chancel of St. Paul's Church in Augusta, where in the summer of 64 was a funeral for Bishop Polk that was attended by no less than General James Longstreet, who was in Augusta at the time, recovering from his wilderness wound. So General Polk was buried in Augusta beneath the floor of St. Paul's Church in Augusta in the summer of 64. When was he dug up? 80 years later, in 1945, finally, the Episcopal Church decided that General Pope, Bishop Pope, gets his wish, and they dug him up from Augusta and moved him to the beneath the floor of Christ Church in New Orleans, where you'll find him buried beneath the marble floor beside him, uh, beside his wife, Frances. But here's the story. Decades ago, I drove out to Augusta and wanted to see where Bishop Polk was buried. An old man was tottering around inside the sanctuary and asked what I was doing. Dean, this old man had been the sexton of St. Paul's Church in Augusta in 45. And when the call came to dig up Bishop Polk, he opened the casket and removed all that was remaining of Polk. I asked him, what was left of him? He said, it wasn't a field of cigar box, some dust, a few bits of bones and teeth. <laughs> I got that story before that guy died. All that was left of Bishop Polk in 45. You won't find it elsewhere in the literature. And that's the question everybody will always ask, right? If you find out somebody's been dug up and, and reinterred, everybody wants to look. I mean, they look with Lincoln when they've, they've dug him up. You yeah, know? that's right. DNA. His son Robert snuck a look in her when they dug up uh, Zachary Taylor, who had a connection here to the uh, president of the Confederacy. I remember that. Yeah, so that's amazing. And to get that from somebody where it's just the most human of questions, that's what brings history alive here. Another myth that you have in the book or that you, I don't know if you call it debunking, but that you explain here, we often hear that Sherman's capture of Atlanta enabled Lincoln to win the war. It's something that's just accepted as a fact, but the actual history is not so cut and dried. What do you hope readers will take away from all the fighting they want to better understand that the role of this city and these battles and that ultimate Union victory? Well, you know, it is unquestionable that in the fall of 64, Sherman's capture of Atlanta had immense psychological impact, positively for the North, negatively for the South. And at the time, Lincoln was worried about re-election. And Confederates, of course, were hoping that he would not be re-elected in November because McClellan was running as a Democrat on a platform that called for armistice and possibly negotiated settlement with the rebels. Regardless of whether you, you believe that McClellan would have done that if elected, the point was that a lot of people thought that preventing Lincoln's re-election was the last hope for the South. And when Atlanta fell, everyone in the North rejoiced because that helped Lincoln's chances for re-election. The election was two months off, 
but it showed that the war was winnable. That much cannot be denied. One of the points, however, that as you allude to, that I try to make in my paperback is, 50 years later, maybe it's a time to take a step back with a deep breath and kind of think about this. Lincoln probably was going to win re-election anyway. As somebody has pointed out, he actually won more electoral votes in 64 than he did in 1860. This is with the war going on. He won more states. Moreover, between Atlanta's fall and the election, Sheridan kills early in the valley. Other stuff is happening. Sherman was the first one to want to burnish his credentials, and he did nothing, nothing to diminish his historical reputation as the guy who saved the Union. It's something, then, that he didn't want to parlay it into running for president. He just wanted his reputation as a warrior, not to be somebody who'd run for office. You'd you'd think most of the time somebody's padding their resume. Well, I don't want to say padding his resume, but talking up their role and, and building a legend for themselves. Usually they want to do something with it, but he never wanted to run. I guess John Sherman tried to run on it, his brother, the U.S. senator. And remember, General Sherman spent, what was it, at least a decade as general-in-chief of the U.S. armies? when they are beginning to conduct their planes war. So Sherman did not seclude himself into anonymity. He was living in Washington as general-in-chief of the armies. I've heard you tell the story, speaking of graves there, about visiting General Sherman's grave. It's colorful, but also insightful. So what's your view of his place in U.S. and your local Atlanta history? Well, you know... I respect General Sherman as a better tactician than Joe Johnston. I respect him as a smart tactician, able to parry John Bell Hood's blow. And he was a canny tactician when, in late August, he despaired of cutting Hood's last railroad and swung fully six of his seven infantry corps in a wide swing 15, 20 miles south of Atlanta and cut the railroad north of Jonesboro. That's just smart, it's tenacious, and uh, it's tactically brilliant. That much I accord to him. On the other hand, General Sherman seemed to revel in making a reputation for cruelty to civilians, and he thought nothing, Dean, of expelling most of the civilians from Atlanta within a week or two after he occupied the city. He even sent the thousand or so northern sympathizers who had stayed in the city throughout two years of Confederate oppression, he sent them north as well. And we all know that Sherman, in addition, ordered the bombardment of 37 days of Atlanta from July 20th to August 25th, when he knew that he was shelling women and children. He just didn't care. A couple of years ago, I participated in a point-counterpoint when the local newspaper wanted to discuss the issue, was Sherman a war criminal? You may know that John Marzalek has written, I believe, the best modern biography of Sherman. And so the editors pitched me and Dr. Marzalek against one another, John arguing, of course he wasn't a war criminal. I said that he was, and I went back 
to the uh, Nuremberg Codes and found four or five instances where Sherman would have been indictable under the Nuremberg Codes for war criminality, e.g. ordering a bombardment of a known population, forcible expulsion of civilian populace from their homes, blah, 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 three or four others. Well, this kind of was what I was thinking about when a few years ago, Bob Mayer and the Civil War Education Association flew me out to St. Louis for a weekend talk. I still remember what I said to Bob. Bob, I accept your kind and generous invitation on this sole condition that somewhere along the way, you will take me to Calvary Cemetery so that I pay my respects to General Sherman. All during the weekend, Dean, people were coming up to me and said, Steve, what are you going to say at Sherman's grave? I would say, I don't know. I'm thinking about it. Sure enough, on Sunday, on the way back to the airport in St. Louis, we find our way past Calvary Cemetery, and my friends and hosts take me to Sherman's grave. By that time, I've written out what I will read in front of his grave, and I have it at the end of one of my books. And I said to his gravestone, I hate you, you son of a bitch, for what you did to my people and my city, and that you won. But I honor you as a soldier, peace to your ashes, and Atlantan. I left my note at his gravesite. What do you feel about people asking you today? I'm sure because of the Civil War and monuments are so much in discussion, even plaques like we talked about. You can't imagine a plaque being as controversial as a statue, but people go after them at times, will vandalize them. And so I'm wondering, I'm sure every Civil War historian here has asked for their opinion of tearing down statues. Rather than ask that, I wanted to ask you to focus on the splashover impact on you as an author. There may be people who don't want to pick up your book. I've had some books that they may have a swastika on the cover or they'll have the stars and bars on the cover. And I don't really want to read that on the A-train because people don't even want you reading about the history anymore. And you, you could draw some unwanted attention. People might think that you're sympathetic to Hitler. Andrew Nagorski's The Nazi Hunters, a giant swastika on the cover. I mean, it, it jumps out to people. So why is it important? important for modern Americans not to turn away from books like All the Fighting They Want, like A Long and Bloody Task, and pick those up and read them, even at a time when people seem to be growing uncomfortable with memorials to the men who fought and died on both sides of the Civil War. Well, it's history. And when we erase history, we're no better than the Taliban who blew up that, what, 3,000-year priceless sculpture? You blow up your history, and what are you doing to yourself, your future, and yourselves as a culture? We talked a lot about this. I was at a conference this past weekend in southern Indiana, and Dr. Bud Robertson was among the faculty, and Bud deliberately asked the moderator, please, let's have no questions at the end of my talk. I don't want to talk about monuments. In the circle that Dean, you and I run in the Civil War community, we get tired about talking about the monuments. But at the same time, I'll say, that's fine. If people want to move generally from Lee Circle in New Orleans to another more secluded park, that's probably just the price we pay for the benefits of being a multicultural and progressive society. On the other hand, Locally here, don't blow up 
the hundred year old sculpture on the face of Stone Mountain to Jefferson Davis, Stonewall Jackson, and Robert E. Lee. Some people down here are talking about covering that up, blowing it up. It's the famous sculpture carved a hundred years ago in what is reputed to be the world's largest outcropping of exposed granite. I'm thinking, don't do that. You know, you don't have to go to Stone Mountain. You have to pay to get in, by the way. If you don't want to see generally on Stone Mountain, don't pay to go to the park. But leave that vestige of Confederate history, which is very important to a number of Southerners. But on the other hand, uh, I worry about Monument Avenue in in Richmond, how in 10 years they might take down the statues of President Davis, General Lee, General Jackson, Matthew Fontaine Maury, all of those go up and leave the one to Arthur Ashe and rename the place Arthur Ashe Avenue. Well, that's. I hope that day never comes. I certainly hope that I'm not around if it does. Well, I like reading about it, and I think that's the thing. I don't want people to when I look at those things happening, I say, maybe we should have to pass a quiz either before we erect a monument or before we take one down and say, what do you really know about it? Because sometimes you do see things and say, who was this fellow? I mean, outside of Parliament in London, they have a statue of Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell. He was certainly no saint, and yet there's his statue. And I know when I saw him there after having spent a couple of weeks in Ireland, I said, oh, this is the guy that we heard about all over Ireland and the rivers would run with blood. It doesn't make you look it up. Well, you know, let's go with that. A couple of years ago, I was fortunate to have been invited by the American Civil War Roundtable of the United Kingdom to come over to London and give a couple of talks in their annual meeting. And I made a point while I was being driven back to my hotel. I asked my host and benefactor, I understand there's a statue to General Bomber Harris. Well, if you remember in World War II, General Harris was the RAF strategic thinker who helped convince Churchill that bombing German cities, not the factories, Dean, but the interior of cities where the workers lived, was a way to erode German war morale. Nowadays, we would call it genocide, from Bomber Harris's saturation bombing of Berlin, Dresden, Hamburg, and others. Then we go to the firebombing of Tokyo, the atomic bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And you can see how I would then say, well, why are you still having a statue to General Bomber Harris? Take that down. Look at what he caused in the ensuing decades of history. The statue is still up. And by the way, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking they have a statue of General Washington there, right there in Parliament Square across the street. By the way, it's on some soil that they brought from the U.S. in keeping with the general's vow that he would never set foot on English soil. So the English say they have that sense of humor, right? Here's a guy who took arms up against his native country and they have a statue to him. And I think if you read about the history, at least then you can have an informed discussion. And I would I would like that if when people were talking about these statues, it wasn't just the nine second soundbite that we get today, but people were really debating it and talking about who's worthy of a statue and who's not based on facts, not necessarily on the feeling. Also in the promo material for all the 
fighting they want. They note that about you, that you bring, quote, knowledge of the battle accumulated over a lifetime living on the ground. The ground is there, too. It's That's why we have battlefields as well. It's not to celebrate the carnage that's there, but to remember it. You include maps and a driving tour for the Atlantic campaign in all the fighting they want. I wanted to keep that in mind. There's been 150 years of development, as much as you or I might feel like we're still sitting having some hardtack, you know, but uh, it's been quite a while since that. So what places that do still exist do you encourage your readers, our listeners today to visit to experience what it would have been like to get a little bit of a ghost of those pivotal days in 1864? Well, you know, I conduct my share of driving tours. People come from around the country and they want to see, okay, show us about the Battle of Atlanta. And so generally speaking, we drive along Collier Road and I point out the markers. I tell, tell, tell about what happened here, etc. But the battlefield's been paved over. The markers are there. There are a few stone monuments and tablets about that help. But a couple of months ago, I'm happy to say, under the aegis of the Atlanta Civil War Roundtable, I helped to lead a group of buffs around some lesser-known sites. And one of them is a Confederate artillery embrasure, Dean, inside the city perimeter highway that a lot of the veteran buffs of the roundtable didn't even know about. Steve, a couple of guys said, I've never been here. And here's a Confederate artillery embrasure manned by the Kentucky Brigade, Bates Division, Battle of Utoy Creek. And there's still some vestiges of the war that can be found. And my point is, whatever it takes to kind of elicit that kind of memory, whether it's a marker, a museum. And by the way, we have a world-class Civil War museum at the Atlanta History Center with the Cyclorama, visiting Kennesaw Mountain Battlefield, or some of these isolated sites like the Bait Artillery Embrasure. I find that people who are involved with the war crave that kind of stuff. And just being there on the site, being able to feel it and imagine it rekindles their passion for history that I don't believe even the dismantlement and demolition of monuments will ever obliterate. Well, Stephen Davis, author of All the Fighting They Want, the follow-up to A Long and Bloody Task, both books on the pivotal Atlanta campaign of the American Civil War, both from Savas Beatty's Emerging Civil War series. Thank you so much for sharing that wealth of knowledge. This is a really fun chat today. You brought to life for us the fall of the Confederacy's great metropolis and put into perspective the Union victory under General Sherman. I wish you the best of luck with both books, and I hope we hear from you again soon. Dean, thank you so much for the honor. It's a pleasure. Again, the book is All the Fighting They Want, The Atlanta Campaign from Peachtree Creek to the City's Surrender, July 18 to September 2nd, 1864. And that's the follow-up to the previous book, A Long and Bloody Task, The Atlanta Campaign from Dalton, through Kennesaw to the Chattahoochee, 
May 5th to July 18th, 1864. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copies at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take in Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just a few extra clicks, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. Thanks so much to Stephen Davis for joining us from Atlanta and for transporting us back to his city during its darkest hours. He shared this expansive view of the Atlanta campaign in his two books, and it really brought alive that idea of brother fighting brother and civilians and soldiers caught up in the war. For more on the Emerging Civil War series, visit SavisBeatty.com or follow them at LLC on Twitter. And while you're online, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. And have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.